good. Okay, great. So I want to uh, begin tonight by expressing my gratitude for being here and uh, for arriving when I did towards the very end. As Rebecca told you, I arrived from San Francisco pretty late at night uh, this past week and um, jet lag, tired, you know, the airport scene, all of that you can imagine, right? So it was interesting. When I arrived, I was walking in the hall back and forth to get set up and my mind just settled. And it wasn't my mind, really. It wasn't something about me. It was more about the space, the, all the practice that all of you have been doing was really palpable. Um, and the morning after when I woke up and I was sitting here in the hall, again, tired, jet lagged, again, the mind just settled. And I, I actually chose to open up to the feeling of stillness and spaciousness that somehow I was, I was feeling. The hall was quiet, not a breath, not a cough. And, um, and I just wanted to thank you for creating this beautiful field of practice and metta that I had the good fortune to drop into. Thank you. And with that, I also invite you, um, as you might be like a fish in the water right now, not realizing, because you've been here for a while, all of you, either three-monthers or six-weekers, you've been here for a while and uh, may not realize what a beautiful still space this community of practitioners, all of you, are co-creating together. So I invite you to open to that as you open to the stillness inside, also open to the stillness outside, and uh, feel how beautiful it is and how nourishing it really is. So uh, the topic of tonight's talk, as you figured out by now already because of the handouts, and actually, um, is there anyone who does not have a handout? Please raise your hand. We'll take a mindful pause as everyone gets handouts. Great. 
Thank you. So the topic is dependent origination, as you all know now. You all have handouts. Thank you again, Greg. And uh, the place of dependent origination uh, in the teachings is quite central. It's been called the crown jewel of the Buddha's doctrine by many. And uh, it's been said that a deep understanding of this concept is no different than the realization of Nibbana. In the words of the Buddha, one who sees dependent co-arising sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent co-arising. The Buddha said that immediately before his enlightenment in meditation, he was inquiring into the chain of conditioning and seeking the causal origination of suffering. And that inquiry specifically led him to discover the law of dependent origination. So from this angle, one can equate the Buddha's enlightenment with attainment of, with the discovery of dependent origination or co-arising. So the concept of dependent origination or paticca samuppada in Pali, And I will be using these terms interchangeably tonight, paticca samuppada, dependent origination, dependent co-arising, quite a bit. Um, So there are two ways. There, There is the general and there is the specific teaching of the two that we'll talk about in a moment. But in general, the this teaching is a basic key concept that connects to karma, rebirth, the arising of dukkha, and also the possibility of liberation because of how various events can arise and how they can seize if their causes and conditions cease. So there's the possibility of liberation in, uh, in dependent origination. It's also not the simplest teaching, as we all probably already know. If you don't, now you know. In the suttas, it's said that Ananda comes to the Buddha and says, It is wonderful, Venerable Sir. It is amazing, Venerable Sir. This dependent origination is so deep and so deep in implications Yet, to me, it seems as clear as clear can be. You sort of know he's setting himself up, right? And the Buddha says, Not so, Ananda. Not so, Ananda. This dependent origination is deep and deep in implications. It is because of not understanding and not penetrating this Dhamma, Ananda, that this generation has become like a tangled skin, like a knotted ball of thread, like matted reeds and rushes, and does not pass beyond the plane of misery, 
the bad destinations, the netherworld, samsara. So it is an important teaching, and uh, he did try to uh, quell the enthusiasm of Ananda that it's not as easy and simple to understand. Yet, um, if it wasn't possible to understand it, he would not be teaching it. He would not have taught it. He would not have included it in the handful of leaves that he did teach us. Also in dependent origination, in the words of the Buddha, this Dhamma that I have attained is deep, hard to see, hard to realize, peaceful, refined, beyond the scope of conjecture, subtle, to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in attachment, is excited by attachment, enjoys attachment. For a generation delighting in attachment, excited by attachment, enjoying attachment, this conditionality and dependent co-arising are hard to see. The state, too, is hard to see. The resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the end of craving, dispassion, cessation, unbinding. And if I were to teach the Dhamma and others would not understand me, that would be tiresome for me, troublesome for me. And he did choose to teach because he knew that there were many with little dust in their eyes who would understand and who would be able to penetrate this law. And you've all been practicing diligently here, trying to remove dust from your eyes. And this is towards the end of the retreat, so it's a very good time to be hearing about this teaching. Hence, it comes at this time of the retreat. So whether this is the first talk you hear on the topic, or it's the hundredth talk that you're hearing on the topic, my hope is that you'll gain or regain familiarity with the concepts and let your mind abide and simmer uh, in the topics. And conceptually, it's not too difficult to understand, but penetrating the complexity of the interconnectedness and seeing them with the Dharma eye, with the wisdom eye, and actually practicing, that takes time. So, and that is also possible. So I will be sharing some pointers for practice as well as just the conceptual setup of this, of this crown jewel of the teachings with you. And again, we only have an hour. I think we can spend months just studying dependent origination. So one hour is pretty short. So starting with the terminology, paticca samupada. Paticca means dependent on, conditioned by. And samupada means arising and the interconnectedness and interrelatedness that characterizes that arising. So the two of them together, a good translation is dependent co-arising because it's, it's an interrelated arising that happens. It's not just linear. It's, it's a, it's a um, 
co-arising of different factors that are dependent on each other. And as I mentioned briefly, there are two senses of this teaching. One is um, the general level that all things are dependent upon multiple causes and conditions, which is an abstract principle that we might consider a structural principle. And then on the specific level, it's actually the, the 12 links of the dependent origination, which is usually how it's taught and it's on your handouts. So as we take the general principle and apply it specifically to the problem of suffering, to the issue of suffering, we come up with the 12 links. So that's the, very, that's the specific application of it. So first, let's spend some time talking about the general principle of conditionality in Buddhism, which is, which is alive and well. So conditionality is uh, a fundamental law of nature. And uh, it's just the way things are. And Buddha discovered it, didn't create it, just discovered what the truth of the way things are actually is and passed it on. This law is beginningless and endless. Basically, it is that whatever arises, it arises in dependence on many conditions and everything that exists, exists in dependence on conditions. And without the support of appropriate conditions, a given phenomena will not be able to remain or exist. So it's just a very general phenomena, very general principle. The way it's expressed in Buddhist terminology is this. When there is this, that comes to be. I actually like to, in, to put in A and B, like a mathematical formula, it becomes easier to deal with instead of this and that. So, so I'll offer that to you. When there is A, B comes to B. With the arising of A, B arises. So notice in the first one, it just it's existing. In the second, in the second clause, when A arises, so it's a matter of arising, something coming to B, then B arises. When there is not A, B does not come to B, and with the cessation of A, B ceases. So covering all of that. So this general law of conditionality is like a spider web, spider tangled web. It's not linear, it's not conditional, it's not necessarily just A, therefore B. There are many, many causes that lead to many conditions. And um, as an exercise, contemplating this general law, let's do a contemplation together. And the contemplation is this. Let's think about the various causes and conditions that are responsible for you being here right now in this hall. Okay, let's start. Well, you're here, so you got here with some transportation. That transportation dependent, depended on roads being there, dependent on the driver, depended on a manufacturer of the 
either the car or the, the airplane, then also you're here because you had some food, otherwise you would have passed out. Um, and that depends on the cooks, depends on people who grew the food, depends on how they got the water, depends on the sun that grew the food. So that then, and you are here because your mom and dad met, their mom and dad met, and um, so on and so on. Actually, I'm going to invite you to contemplate in silence and not just including all the causes, well, not all, but some few of the causes and conditions um, but uh, that, that have to do with objects, but also people. For example, speaking of the food and, say, the cooks, the people who support the cooks, their families, their loved ones, their parents, the, the economical structure that has allowed food to be raised and sold, the governmental structures, the, I mean, you can see how you being here is dependent on so many causes and conditions. And we haven't even, I don't, we, we have perhaps named point, point, Point oh 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 one percent of the cause and conditions responsible for you being here. It's a tangled web, isn't it? So that in also relates to the principle of interbeing, which. Um, as a side note, I would like to mention is one of the teachings of, of Thich Nhat Hanh, and he talks a lot about interbeing, how everything in, we, we are not existing as an independent entity. We are so dependent on everything and everyone, and it boggles the mind. It's, it's very humbling, really humbling. And this aspect of dependent origination, this general principle of conditionality, this web, also relates to anatta. And how does it relate to anatta? So, in a sense, there is there is no independent existence when you contemplate all the causes and conditions and interdependence. So there is no independent existence. None of us have independent existence, none of ourselves. And also there is no substantial nat- nature of our existence on its own. Actually, nothing does. Nothing has substantial existence just on its own accord. It's dependent on all the causes and conditions that support it. And in the case of, of our existence, given that the five khandhas also are dependently arisen, and the entirety of the human experience are the five khandhas, and they are dependently arisen, therefore 
there is, there is no self-enduring substance. There is no self, independent self that exists in and of itself. It's all dependent on causal conditions. With the concept of, uh, of general law of conditionality, there is no beginning um, and no end. And that makes a differentiation between the, uh, the Western Judeo-Christian understanding of conditionality and the Buddhist conditionality. Because there is God and myth of creation, there is a beginning. Whereas in Buddhism, there is no beginning, there are just causes and conditions. And, and thinking about the beginning is one of the imponderables. I have to say, this appeals to me with the understanding of science and Big Bang. So Big Bang having occurred about 13, 13 billion years ago when everything came into existence, protons, neutrons, stars, as well as time and space. So before the Big Bang, time and space didn't exist. So if you want to ask what caused the Big Bang, we can't quite answer it within, within the framework that our minds operate in, because our minds operate in the space and time. And if space and time did not exist before that, the cause and conditions for Big Bang are outside, are outside the framework that we have available. And that, to me, um, it, uh, it ties in for me nicely with, with, the, with the conditionality in, uh, in Buddhism, that there is no single cause that started something. It's, it's not quite fathomable what it was. So the complexity of both work for me. I hope it works for you too. And if it doesn't, chuck it out. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, usually we think that the chain of cause and effect needs a first cause. But for Buddhism, there is no original beginning. The succession of causes and conditions has been occurring without any conceivable beginning, without any bounds or limits. So, I hope having talked a little bit about the general, um, the structural, and uh, the um, dependent origination is somewhat clear, perhaps. And now let's take this principle and talk about the specific application of it to suffering, which then gives us the 12 links of dependent origination. And the 12 links, as they have been laid out in the handout that you have, are ignorance, avijja, volitional formations, sankhara, Consciousness, vijnana, mentality and materiality, namarupa, six sense bases, salayatana, contact, pasa, feeling tone, vedana, craving, tanha, clinging, upadana, becoming, bhava, jati, birth, jati. Aging, death, and this entire mess of dukkha, jaramarana. So, 
The 12 links are often taught in a three life model with some of the causes, the first two causes beginning in a previous life leading to to our existence in the present life and then the the birth suffering and death in the next life buddha gosa and visuddhi maga path of purification bhikkhu bodhi and many teachers teach the traditional understanding of the three life model or the multi life model and you can take any three lives this life being in the middle, your past life and your future life, or, or three lives in the past. You can just move the three life window to the past or the future so it can work. Um, it can be transportable. Um, so many teachers teach the, the tra- traditional understanding. Um, and also I want to mention that some teachers, including Ajahn Buddha Dasa, present a one-life model in this very life. Um, and both models offer practical pointers for practicing in this very life. Um, just because something makes more sense or, or, or many teachers think that the exposition makes more sense in a three-life model doesn't mean that you cannot practice dependent origination in this very life. In fact, the most important part of the practice, as we'll talk about in a moment, has to be done in this very life. Otherwise, what would be the point if we can't practice it? So, so liberation is possible with both models. Um, and tonight in my talk, I will mainly present the traditional multi-life model for your consideration. And at the end, if we have time, um, I'll also briefly mention the, the highlights of the one-life model in case you're curious. And uh, personally, I want to say that I find both of the models useful. Um, The multi-life model gives me a sense of urgency um, to practice in this very life when when I consider that the samsaric existence, this samsaric existence has been going on for eons over and over and over and over again. It's like, okay, enough now. Let's practice. Let's do this thing. Um, and I invite you to check into how you hold the multi-life model. Do you like it? Do you have aversion to it? Just be aware. Just be aware of, of how you hold that, the idea of, of past lives and reincarnation. And... Uh, for me, when I started my practice, I was quite averse to it. I scoffed at the idea of reincarnation. I started as a strict materialist. And, um, and now I hold it with a don't know mind. I just don't know. How do I know? I might, this, this being might have existed before. Maybe not. Um, I don't hold on to the view of past lives, neither do I completely reject it. I don't know. And yet, it's been helpful for my practice, I have to say, having that perspective that maybe. And 
whatever is helpful for for practice, the, the perspective that is helpful can serve as right view, right view as helpful perspective, whatever is helpful in your practice. Another thing that has given me pause and, and helped me come out of the aversive camp to this idea has actually been some of the research by um, a respected scientist um, called Ian Stevenson. And uh, he was a Canadian-American psychiatrist who worked at the University of Virginia School of Medicine for 50 years and uh, did quite a bit of research into reincarnation traveling for extensively for a period of 40 years and documenting, investigating 3,000 cases of children around the world who claimed to remember past lives and even documenting not just their memories and emotions but physical injuries uh, in the form of birthmarks that corresponded to how they reported they had died in a previous life. And some of those photos are actually available on the web if you search. So, uh, is Carl Sagan, the, the luminary astronomer who's been quite a skeptic about uh, the paranormal, in 1996, um, and, and he's been a founding member of a group that has set out to debunk unscientific claims. Um, so he's quite a cynic and critic about anything parapsychological. Wrote in his book, The Demon Haunted World, and I quote, There are three claims in the parapsychology field which, in my opinion, deserve serious study. The third of which was that young children sometimes report details of a previous life which upon checking turn out to be accurate and which they could not have known about in any other way than reincarnation. So I offer the multi-life view for your consideration, not to hold on to, but just hold it with a don't-know mind. It's part of the traditional Buddhist teachings, and just let it wash over you. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to believe anything. And just listen. Just hear it. So with that, the three-life model, as I mentioned, has the first two conditions as the past causes ignorance and mental formations in the past life. And then in this life, vijnana through bhava, consciousness through becoming, are in this life, and you can see that on your handout. And in the next life, there's jati and jaramarana, birth and aging and death. And also to say that all of these factors operate in this life. So in a way, the one-life view is also part of the multi-life view also. But the model works out nicely with, with, with the three-life model. So we'll start with avijja, ignorance. We start in the previous life. Often in, in tankas, in, in, in beautiful circular um, 
depictions of dependent origination, the Tibetan ones especially, which are very beautiful and colorful and depicted nicely. The, the one I have is not that colorful and very simple. Um, but um, there's often imagery. Well, there's always imagery in the tankas. They're, they're, they're quite elaborate, in fact. Um, Avijja is represented by the image of a blind person who blunders forward, unable to see where he or she is going. So ignorance, um, as Rebecca talked about beautifully a couple of nights ago also, is not seeing things as they are, not seeing the three characteristics, and not seeing the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, its origin, the causes, clinging that leads to it, and its cessation, and the way to its cessation. And ignorance doesn't just mean a conceptual lack of understanding here. It means a spiritual lack of understanding, a practical not seeing things as they really are. We might know, oh yes, things are, yeah, yeah, I know, things are impermanent, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, but not really seeing it, not really practicing it, still taking things to be permanent and, and looking for satisfaction where none is to be found. So even though in this chain, Ignorance is considered the first one. It's not the first cause. It, of course, it itself arises as a condition of many other causes. But one reason why it's been put at the very beginning is to emphasize how important it is, how important ignorance really is, not seeing things as they really are. Sankara, volitional formations, being the second factor, is dependent on ignorance. Sankara means forming, constructing, creating, putting together, and it refers here specifically to mental formations. And the factor of Sankara here is equivalent to Kama, Because in kama, what forms kama is volition. That's the most important factor in creating kama. And in volitional formations, the mental formations again, that volitionality, that will, is the most important aspect of it. So... Kama means that volitional formations or acts of will that are expressed outwardly through acts of body, through actions, through acts of speech, or even thoughts in the mind. And they form, they form this residue. They form these karmic formations, these karmic potentialities, like seeds that then give rise to more actions of the same kind. In the neuropsychological terms, it's often said that the neurons that fire together, wire together, 
so they become linked and the grooves are well set for more of the thoughts, more actions of the same kind to happen over and over and over again. Sankara or relational formations are often represented by the image of a potter. And the same way that a potter forms clay into something new, an action begins a sequence that then leads to new sequences. And also another part of this that I love is the same way that a potter's wheel, once it is set in motion, it keeps turning. You see that? It just keeps turning after you set it in motion. After you think about a thought once, it just keeps going and going and going and, and sets the groove in the mind. The same way that without much effort, this, the wheel continues to, spill, to spin. These actions create predispositions in our minds. Consider this image. So whenever there is a volitional action that arises in the mind, encompassed by ignorance, it leaves an imprint in the mind. And this formation has a capacity to, to mature and bring fruit out in the future. And it's like a seed that has the power to germinate. And the most important aspect of it here is the volitional formations that have the power to generate a new existence in the future and give birth and create birth, sort of move forward. And depending on whether um, there were wholesome or unwholesome volitions that were set into motion, they could bring about good or bad rebirths. So this becomes important as we move from the past causes, from the past life now to this present life, to consciousness. Think about it as billiard balls. So as a billiard ball moves with force, and that is the karmic volition, and it hits another billiard ball, the two billiard balls are different. They're different entities, but they're both moving with the same force, with the same karmic potentiality. So the past life karmic potentiality at the moment of death is passed on to the next life. So consciousness or vijnana being the third one, first it's construed as rebirth consciousness or rebirth linking consciousness, which is the consciousness that links the first moment of this life with the last moment of the previous life and transferring that karmic potentiality that we were just talking about, the volitional formations. It's often represented by a monkey, which goes from window to window, which represents a single consciousness that perceives through the different sense organs. We'll talk about this in a moment. It also uh, represents the monkey mind, which I guess we're all familiar with by now. So uh, volitional formations are conditioned by ignorance, both wholesome and unwholesome. 
And again, when death occurs, a new moment of consciousness and new life starts. And the conscious, uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the new consciousness, the rebirth linking conscious, consciousness joins up with the materiality that exists in that point, which is the fertilized egg. And if the past, the past karma, if the volitional formations are wholesome, then it will be a favorable birth, and if not, otherwise. So the same consciousness, the same rebirth-linking consciousness that's dependent on the karmic formations, this, this billiard ball energy that's coming from the past life, that consciousness, it's not something that's permanent. It's something that arises and passes away every moment. So in the moment of birth, it's called rebirth-linking consciousness. But it's the same thing that operates for the rest of our lives until the moment of death when the next rebirth-linking consciousness of the next life starts. So while we are not perceiving in this life, that becomes what's called the uh, bhavanga um, consciousness, um, which is a passive consciousness. For example, when you sleep, it's the passive consciousness, but the con- it continues. But then that consciousness becomes, whenever there is an object, say, at, the, at any of the sense doors, say, at the eye door, then eye con- that, that bhavanga consciousness, which is the continuum consciousness, becomes eye consciousness and has contact. When there's a sound, it becomes ear consciousness in that moment. Uh, if there's a taste, it becomes taste consciousness. So it's the same consciousness that manifests itself in different ways, um, depending on wh- what objects is impinging upon which sense door. So the next on the list we have mentality and materiality, or materiality and mentality, nama rupa, which is often represented by people in a boat traveling through samsara, um, where one of them is steering. And the boat symbolizes form, which is the body, the materiality of the body. And the mentality, the mental aggregates of contact, feeling, perception, volition, blah, 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 all of those, um, they're represented by all the people, the occupants of the boat. And um, to get a sense of the mental factors, um, they are um, likened to, um, so, so the um, consciousness is likened to a king and who sits passively on a throne and the mental factors are like the retinue, the, uh, the, the busy ministers that are doing all the hard work. Another um, simile um, is uh, consciousness is like the screen in a sim- cinema and the mental factors are like the images protect- projected on a screen. And we often don't notice the screen itself because we are paying so much attention to the images that we're caught up in. So in the moment of conception, um, nama rupa or materiality and mentality exist, but they're pretty simple, simple form, just one cell and it starts to expand. And and as um, the rest of the life continues, 
of course, it, 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 um, the materiality expands. The next, the fifth factor is the six sense faculties, or salayatana, which is depicted as a house with six doors, with six windows and a door. And um, the uh, senses, the, the six senses are the windows that we have into the world, how we perceive objects in the world. And they also, um, the senses are manifestations of our desire to experience the world in a particular way. So as the psychophysical organism matures from one cell to a multi-cell organism's growing ears and nose and you know the various sense bases, that's what this is. These are actually the sense bases that are growing um, in, in this part. And of course, in, in, um, in Buddhism, the, 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 set, the six sense bases are very important in processing information. So, so they take a particular place in, um, in this paradigm. Because there has to be a place where objects are going to impinge, as we'll see next in contact. So the six sense faculties, or salayatanam, is basically the means of us gathering information about the world. Next we have pasa, which is contact, and it's uh, shown as a couple embracing, um, and actually it's usually symbolized by a kiss, contact, contact. And this is simply the coming together of the consciousness and the sense object just making contact and again if it's if it's it doesn't there's a seeing object then the, it's basically the the sight object making contact with eye consciousness is just contact it's just that first moment oh just noticing something you just notice you you heard something that that first moment that's contact but now it starts to get interesting and juicy okay well Next, we have feeling tone, Vedana, and we're familiar with that. So it's symbolized pretty graphically, actually, by an eye, by a person whose eye is pierced by an arrow. Um, The arrow represents the, the data impinging on the sense organ, and in this case, it's the eye, and it's pretty vivid, and I guess it's negative Vedana, but it can be either negative or positive, could be either unpleasant or present. But the point is that even a small amount of contact is going to leave quite an impression, uh, even if we may not sense it, but there's always a vedna, positive, uh, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. And, and noticing vedana, uh, feeling tone, is so important that out of the four foundations of mindfulness, the second one is entirely dedicated to vedana, to, to seeing Vedana, seeing how it arises, how it passes, how it changes, how it's this, how it's that. So it's such an important practice to see Vedana, to see the feeling tone just as it arises. Oh, liking. Ooh, before it becomes a lot of liking. You see that first moment of liking or not liking, especially if you're an aversive type. Ooh, not liking, really seeing that first moment. Next, we have Tanha craving and we know that after there is the pleasant or unpleasant of the Vedana 
uh, feeling tone, it gives rise to tanha, craving. The imagery is represented by a person drinking beer surrounded by a lot of empty bottles. (laughs) Great imagery, isn't it? No matter how much you drink, it's just not enough. It's just, it's want more, want more, craving, want more. Uh, It's uh, the mental factor that increases desire without any satisfaction. And at this point, we have a major step forward in the wheel of existence. As you can see on the handout, now we have crossed over from present effects to present causes. And now we have started to create conditionality for the future. So far, it was the result of our past karma. Now we're moving forward, baby. So... um, There is a space between the feeling tone and craving, and that's a very important, actually that's the most important part of practicing dependent origination, whatever model you're subscribing to, because that's where the round of samsara can come to an end. That's where there's a moment of choice preventing craving from arising. So noticing the Vedna and not allowing the, the tanha, the craving, to become clinging, moment of choice. Next we have upadana, which is clinging, number nine, which is represented by a monkey reaching for a fruit and, and uh, grabbing an object of desire. And it's likened to uh, the way that the um, uh, tanha and upadana are, are separated is that craving is like a thief extending its hand to steal. Clinging is when the thief has taken possession of the object. So it's basically an intensification of craving that has become, oh, I want this, I'm not going to let go. Mine, me, 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 me. Next we have bhava, existence, becoming, which is represented by a woman in late pregnancy. And just as the baby is gestating and in in the belly, it's also the same way that uh, that karma is being potentialized and being collected more and more and more in this life. So in this, this phase of this life, in, in, in this phase of life, we're accumulating more kama, more volitional formations that create more future life, more life in the future. Next, we have jati taking a new birth, and now we have crossed over to the next life, the results of all the the accumulation of this karmic potential now is going to bear fruits in the next life. This is uh, represented by an image of a woman giving birth to a child. So in the previous one, the child was gestating and now it's it's, it's getting birth. Um, And 
and the string of comings go on and on as we take birth. And inevitably, we move on from 11 to 12, which is Jaramaranam, Sukha, Parideva, Sukha, Domanasu, Payasa, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair. And again, it's not just that this arises in the next life, it's just that this is the way the model works, but of course there's plenty of despair in this life too, from the, the three, you know, if you move the three lives to the previous life, it's, there's death in this life, and lamentation and sorrow and suffering in this life and, and death. So they say the main, um, the main cause of death is birth. There you have it, inevitable. So I'd like to point out three important links um, here. There is an important link link between the past causes and present effects. And that important link is from the volitional formations into consciousness. You know, the billiard balls that I talked about, the potentiality. That's an important link. The second important link is between feeling tone and craving, which actually is the most important link of this whole dependent origination, is not allowing the, to notice the feeling tone before it becomes craving. Um, and Bhikkhu Bodhi, earlier as I talked about it, he, he also highlights that moment of choice between craving and clinging um, and and in the practice of, of, the, of the second um, foundation of mindfulness it's really practicing noticing the feeling tone Vedana which which um, is the place after you've noticed Vedana is where you still have control a moment of choice a moment of wisdom so that it doesn't become into craving and the third link is between the present causes and future effects, which is existence or becoming, this collecting more and more volitional formations and more acts of will that you do in this life, etc., etc., that create karmic potentiality for birth in, in the future. And out of, out of all three, again, it's been highlighted that the feeling to craving link is the most important one and is really a place for all of us to practice in this life. So, as we practice with mindfulness and clear comprehension of the feelings that arise, and if we apply wisdom to what is arising, to to know that it's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and without a substantial sense of self, then we'll be able to see phenomenal for what it is and not allow it to get into into craving. And if we lack mindfulness understanding, then we relish, become attached, want more of, and on and on we go. Though mind you, this is not to be uh, experienced with aversion, to, to notice 
the 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 liking and and or the the positive vagina and 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 try to kill it right there. It's, the idea is not that obviously because then you can just add more aversion to it and. Um, it's just to see with, with clear comprehension that it's empty. Um, and also for lay people, this is not supposed to be a life-denying teaching, actually for all of us. Um, and especially for lay followers, the Buddha's message was to enjoy life wisely. Wisely. With the stress on wisely. So in the few minutes that we have left, I'd like to make good on my promise and highlight a few um, points about the One Life model. So, um, some of the aspects of of that model are um, the highlights. One is becoming. So in that, one becomes. It really takes shape and form in whatever... um, uh, feeling and craving uh, and clinging has, has, has been. So whatever obje- object has the mind has been, the, the one becomes that. For example, one becomes fear. One becomes anxiety. One becomes it. That's the way becoming is interpreted in, in the Buddha Gosa model. Um, with that, I'd like to, to tell you about Mullah Nasruddin, the, the, the Sufi uh, wise man. Um, one day he uh, sees his child crying and wailing. And he goes to the child and says, what, what happened? Why are you so upset? He said, well, I was bored. So I started to entertain myself by telling myself a story. And in the story, there was a monster. And I got really, really afraid of the monster. It was really scary. So, I, I, so I'm really scared of the monster and become, and I started to cry. So really, because it's, so um, the fabrication of our minds, we make up these stories in our mind and then we, come, we become scared. We start to cry. We become, we become whatever our mind is fabricated and we become them. We become the fear. We experience it. In also this one life model, the taking birth, is um, interpreted as taking birth into one of the realms in this very life. So, for example, um, the realms of hungry ghosts, if there's this need to be satisfied, wanting, wanting, this, this, this hungry ghost, it's, you can experience being a hungry ghost in this very life. Anyone experience being a hungry ghost in this life? Anyone? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, or... If you experience the stupidity, you have you have uh, you have uh, taken birth in the animal realm in this very life, haven't you ever said that was stupid? What was I thinking? That uh, if there's some suffering, you're in the human realm. <laughs> Welcome. Um, some if if you're experiencing sense pleasures, you've taken birth in the deva or heavenly realms. Or if you're on retreat and and you're filled with bliss and equanimity of concentration, you've taken birth in the jhana or brahma realms. So you can also practice this way, and if you had more time, I would read an example out of this, but you can find this yourself online if you're so inclined. 
It's Paticca Samuppada, Practical Dependent Origination by Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu, which is the One Life model. And the Bhikkhu Bodhi is also available in his writings and online. So however way, whichever way, whichever model works for you, just remember that the most important way to practice dependent origination, to stop going on and on and on, the suffering to, to, to achieve liberation, really is noticing the Vedana, noticing the feeling tone, and before it becomes um, craving and specially clinging, because by that time it's too late. We're in the throes already. So with that, let's sit for a moment. 